The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. God has given you his word. He's divided that Bible into two parts. The Old Testament has 39 books and the New Testament has 27 books. 60 plus percent of the Bible is what? Old Testament. But yet, where do we spend the majority of our time? It seems like that we gravitate to the New Testament, because after all, we're New Testament Christians, and the Old Testament is not nearly as valuable. But yet, when you look at God's Word, you have to remember that He gave us the whole Bible, and all of it is valuable. That is why we see a verse that you all know very well in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, all Scripture is God-breathed. That includes the Old Testament. And it goes on to say that all Scripture is profitable. That likewise would include the Old Testament. What is it profitable for? For teaching, giving us instructions to what God desires and demands of us, for rebuking, to pierce our sinful heart, to get us to change within our wrong behavior, for correcting, for correcting our lives, if you will, the words corrective power to change lives so it would be obedient to him, and for training in righteousness to be instructed by God. All of that is found in and is true of the Old Testament. Now, part of the issue, it seems like, if you think about it, is that we correctly and proudly proclaim as New Testament Christians that we're what? We're not under law, but we're under grace. And while that is true, I would like to suggest that when you look at the Bible as a whole and you start within the Old Testament, God has done an amazing thing here in giving us his completed revelation to us. You know, if you look at the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, what Moses wrote, that really provides the theological foundation for the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. It's that core base belief that God has given within those books. And it's interesting that as you see how the Bible progresses, how all the books that follow Moses' writing continue to build upon and reflect upon what Moses wrote. You see the historical books, the nation of Israel going through all kinds of things. Why? Because they were not following God and doing what God had commanded them within the law. We go to the book of the Psalms. We love the Psalms, right? Great things that are in there. We love to read them. But yet, and it's interesting that the psalmists, they are the ones that reflected upon the law in, re- in relationship to life as a whole. Psalm 1-3 says this, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and meditates upon it day and night. It's important to consider, important to look at. You go to the book of Proverbs. Again, we love the Proverbs, right? Some great little sayings and great little things here that we can use within our life. But you know what? The writers of Proverbs use the law as the basis for the development of wisdom. Then you move into the prophets. And you know what the prophets were? They were kind of like the the cops of the day. (laughs) They were the policemen, if you will. They were the ones that were calling people and calling the nation back to the obedience to the law that God had given. And we have to understand is that when we realize that the law itself reflects a relationship between God and Israel, it's not just rules and regulations for its own self, if you will, but it reflects that relationship to God. And once we receive that, it becomes a much more powerful guide to our life and to our living as it reflects what is important to God as the law giver. We have to keep that in mind as we look at the text because it's important to God. It's reflecting what his opinion is. It is reflecting what is important to him and it reveals much about his nature and character that we will be looking at. 
you know, a, a little quote, I guess you could say, that you should remember. Whenever God gives a law to anybody at any time, it reveals something about his attitude toward the problem or the issue at hand. Any time that God gives a law to anybody at any time, it reveals something about the attitude toward the problem and issue. So I would go so far to say that every law, even in the Old Testament, and even though it's not binding upon us as New Testament Christians, tells us something about God, what's important, what is, it, what is necessary for us to have a proper life. It tells us something about him and, uh, and, and about what he feels is the priority because he's the one that gave the law. Now let's take it a step further as we move into the New Testament. Do you realize that the Bible of Jesus was the Old Testament? Why wouldn't you want to use and know the Bible that Jesus used? That's what he had. That's what he was trained and taught under as he was within his household. And, and, and you know, years ago, um, there was something that was out there, and I don't truly keep tab on these kind of things today, but uh, years ago, there was this thing out there, this saying that was made into jewelry. It was four letters, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I was, that's a very noble thing. But really, the question is, is then taking us back to what would Jesus do? And in order for us to know what Jesus would do, we would have to know how Jesus would think. Because once we have within our minds the knowledge, we take that knowledge and then we put it into action. So then the question comes, as you think about what would Jesus do, we have to then answer the question is, how does Jesus think? What would he think? And the answer is very noble, if you will. The answer is transparent. If we want to be able to do what Jesus would do, we have to think like Jesus would think, and we would have to permeate our minds with the very same information that Jesus permeated his mind with, which was what? The Old Testament. And then Jesus himself, as he looked at that, and we look at the Gospels, it provides how Jesus assimilated that thinking within to his life and with his living. And then the epistles of the New Testament continue on the accumulation of that learning, the continuation of Jesus' thoughts on these topics. So if we really want to be able to do what Jesus would do in the events of our life, we need to know his word. We need to know the Old Testament. And yes, today we kind of have an advantage because now it's the entire Bible that we have to guide us and to direct us in those areas. So with that in mind, I want to delve into an Old Testament book. You're going to have me for the next four weeks. And I hope that for the next four weeks here that we're going to be able to demonstrate a couple of things. Number one, that it is indeed possible to get through an entire book of the Bible in four weeks. Secondly, that there is indeed much to find within the Old Testament. And there's much there that can really help us within our life and walk before the Lord. Now, in order to find the Old Testament book, it's going to be very easy. Because if you have it, all you have to do is have it up before you and let it plop open. And it will automatically fall open to the book of Matthew, where we will be until the year 2035. Okay? You haven't been in Thessalonians long enough for it to have a crease there to fall open to. So you'll open it up to the book of Matthew, and then you go back one book to the last book within the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. We will be there for the next four weeks, and as with any new book, we now have to go through some introductory matters as we introduce it to you. 
Uh, first off, who's the author? Let's get it out of the way. We've heard it from the pulpit many times, uh, at least two or three times that I can remember. Bob Scott even brought it up in our meeting this morning, and the joke has been out there ever since I, well before when I was born, about 39 years ago, but it, it's been out there for a long time. And the trivia question is, what is the only book in the Bible that was written by an Italian? And the answer is this, but you pronounce it Malachi. Okay. <laughs> Pastor Todd has said, I know a couple of times, but it's out there. You'll hear it again many times, I'm sure, before your time on earth is up. Well, we know that that's just a joke. We know that it's not true. You'll look high and low in the book of Malachi, and you will not find anywhere any mention of pizza. So it could not have been written by an Italian, okay? But however, here's the thing. Who was Malachi? Now, you know when you look at this. When you begin to study, you have these Old Testament critical scholars. And the Old Testament critical scholars, I personally am kind of convinced that they exist to try to deny anything that an evangelical fundamental person would believe. And they therefore say, you know, who was Malachi? We're not sure if it was really written by a man named Malachi because the word Malachi means my messenger. And since it was leans my messenger, whether it was really a person named Malachi, we're not sure. I mean, it could have been, been right, anybody. It could have been a dude named George who wrote the book for all we know because George had a message. And I just shake my hands at this. I said, why can't you just take the text for what it says? Okay, the Old Testament prophets only identified themselves by name. It says that it was written by Malachi. I have no issue in saying that this was a real live person by the name of Malachi that wrote this book. The book was written around 430 B.C., but even that's being called into question because, you know, now there's an alternative dating method out there. And the alternative dating method says that you have to add 2,020 years to this. And, and, it's, and Malachi was then really not written in 430 B.C., but it was more like around 2,450 B.C. Now, by the way, all of us are under the alternative dating method. You know, I'll just use my wife and I as an example. We were married June 12th, 1982 B.C., yeah, it's the alternative dating method. Is that right? Yeah. June 12, 1982, B.C. B.C., before COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Malachi, 430 B.C. before Christ, 2450 B.C. before COVID. Take your pick. You heard it here first. Just remember. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about this. That's the beauty of us being public speakers. We, we kind of unmask reality. Moving on. What's the purpose or the theme of the book? Many times you'll hear people ask, why was this book written? And whenever I hear them say, why was this book written, I kind of say, the answer is easy, because God said so. It's not that hard. But when they normally say, why was this book written, you have to understand that there is a theme, a purpose, a history behind every book that the writer addresses. So very briefly, we find in five, as we lead up to the time of Malachi in 430 BC before Christ, we find that Israel is in an interesting situation. Around 538 B.C., King Cyrus issued a decree that the Jews who were exiled into Babylon needed to come back and rebuild their temple. 50,000 people took them up on that. They came back, and 23 years later, the temple, the religious worship center, if you will, of Israel, was rebuilt. You don't hear too much from that time frame until the time of Ezra. Because Ezra comes back with a group of people, and then Nehemiah comes back in around 445 B.C. with the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So in a, in a very short period of time, those walls get rebuilt. 
So it was amazing what God was doing within the nation. The nation of Israel gets back in their land. The temple is rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt. Things seem to be going very well. But then Nehemiah leaves the scene, and then things begin to fall apart. Lethargy set in. Spiritual, you know, laxity, if you will, leniency. You know, all these great things that had happened had now been forgotten. And all of a sudden, the nation of Israel was falling back into their old ways, falling away from God. And to that declining state of affairs, Malachi is called on the scene. He's going to come in here to call the people back to God. And Malachi is going to be pointing out over and over again in this book that God loves us, but yet at the same time there's expectation and demands upon us that we need to live godly lives. He is one, God is one, that must be taken seriously, and we must seek to fear him and, and to honor him in our life and in our living. Now, I want you to be forewarned. You know, this is not a book that you use frequently for devotionals. It's not a book that, that you would call one of the feel-good books of the Bible. That's not what it is. It is one that, quite honestly, is not going to get you all pumped up and excited as you start your day. Rather, this book has much to say to us as God speaks through Malachi, and some of it just might irritate you. Some of it might cause you to just say this, I just don't even like listening to this. But that is what needed to be done to the people within that day as God is telling, it, telling the people just like it is. He was telling them that they needed to come back to them, and he's telling them today and then even us today what he wants, what he desires, and what he demands from us as we must take God seriously. And I have no doubt that sometimes with the subjects that are in here, some of you will be leaving and not be too thrilled with what you heard. But that's all because God is stating it clearly. And he wants all of us, myself included, to be searching and looking at our lives to make sure that God has that priority, that God has the authority that he should have within our lives as we seek to live it before him. And we should be living those type of lives that are pleasing to God. So with that in mind, let's turn to Malachi chapter 1. And we are going to be reading the first chapter, the first 14 verses. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned the hill country into a wasteland and led his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say... Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build it, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even before the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor that's due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect that's due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that just not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would they be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 
Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hand, will he ever accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great amongst the nations from where the sun arises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and his food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them in sacrifice, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has, made an ex- who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared amongst the nations. Did you see a common theme running through here, by the way? As you just got to keep this in mind, the latter part in verse 15, I am a great king, my name is to be feared. Look over at verse 11 where it says what? My name will be great amongst the nations. And then over in verse, in verse 5 it says what? And you will see with your own eyes and you will say great is the Lord. Do you see the emphasis? The whole point is keeping God great. Keeping him in, in the forefront. Keeping him with the ultimate priority because his name is worthy to be worshipped and is worthy to be out front in, in your life and be controlled by it. Is that true of you? And that's what Malachi is going to be emphasizing as we go through this first chapter. Now, we're going to be looking at this section in two, in two movements of thought. The first one is this in verses 1 through 5. God's love for us is demonstrated by actions. God's love for us is demonstrated by actions. Now, the prophet here, you've got to remember, <laughs> he doesn't have an easy task. This is not easy to do what he is going to be doing. You know, when a believer sins, you know, we not only break the law of God, but you realize we break the heart of God. You know, when we sin, it's just not the disobedience of a servant to a ruler, but it is, if you will, a sin against, as a child against a loving father. It breaks his heart. And any sin that we cherish or think we can get away with, guess what? It breaks the heart of God. It brings grief to him. And that's why, depending on your translation, it starts out that this is a prophecy. It's an oracle, a burden. The word literally indicates something that's a weighty or heavy item that's going on here. Because now Malachi is undertaking a very difficult task in rebuking the people for the sin and lethargy that, they are, that they, is existence at this time within their lives. He's calling them back to godly living. Malachi clearly saw what was going on here. The reality of the situation he saw. And his role and job was not one to just, let's smooth things over and make it okay. Let's just, you know, it'll all go away if we just smooth it over. No, he was called to make things right. And in order to do so, he was very bold and upfront in so doing. Now, the approach that Malachi takes, you've already seen it in the first chapter. You will see it through all of the books. But you're going to see how Malachi says something like this in order to bring everything into full light and discussion. He'll make a statement along the lines of, this is what God says, and then follow up, but you say, and then he then goes on and deals with the problem. The first one here is stated in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
Should have been obvious, right? God loves the nation. God loves people. God is the one that has been intimately involved within the nation of Israel's life. God is the one that gave unconditional love to that nation. He's the one that continued to work with them throughout history. He is the one that, that made a, I mean, all the way back in Genesis, making a covenant with Abraham, saying this is what he was going to do. And it was an intimate, personal love as he worked with his chosen nation. I mean, if you look at uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, he compared Israel as the apple of his own eye. He had this intimate, close relationship of love toward that nation. Should have been obvious, right? But then notice how the people respond. But you ask, really? How have you loved us? Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I, I got all kinds of reactions mixed going on within my heart and mind. You know, uh, it's a shocking reply. I mean, how can you say that? I mean, how would you like it as a parent uh, if you tell your child that you love them and they go, how have you loved us? I mean, it would just hurt. It would cut. How, how do you mean? I, how can you say that? You know, my initial response is by not grounding you for life. That's how I it clearly demonstrated, you know. But that's my sinful response. And you would think here that God in some way is going to respond in his own way. Do I need to adjust this? Todd's got it. Okay. All right. He's on it. All right. Thanks. I can easily go back to the old-fashioned way, you know, a microphone here. <laughs> so <laughs> very simple to do. But anyway, so, so this reply here is given. It says, what are you doing? How can you not recognize this? Now, at the same time, we have to remember Israel was still going through some difficulty at this time. I'm sure they had fallen away, and things were really deteriorating. But if you will, they were still under foreign rule. They still were having pestilence and plagues, if you will. Difficulties were there. Life was hard. And in fact, if we look and, uh, and compare it to our life, our life's hard too, right? And there are difficulties and trials that we tend to go through uh, in that respect. And even though God had done many things for them, it was easily and quickly forgotten. Now, you know, I would just want to, before I move on here, want to say this is an issue we have to be careful of. Because we can easily fall into the same trap of the nation of Israel. When things don't go our way, when all of a sudden trials and difficulties come, can we question God's love? And when we begin to question God's love, what's the initial then reaction? And this is where Satan kind of has us. The minute that we begin to question God's love, and we say, well, God, if you don't love us, why should I love you? And if we then question why should we love God, is that not demonstrated in our actions and in our life? Because all of a sudden we fall away. We become disobedient. If God doesn't care about me, why should I then care about him by living the way that he demands of us? It's a trap you've got to be careful of. Now God here, instead of sending a lightning bolt to wake them up, he patiently deals with his children who are asking this question. And he then gives us his actions that he did in demonstrating his love for them. And the first demonstration of his action was he loves them. And you can know that by his electing grace. And that is given to us in verse 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now what I don't want to do at this point is to spend the rest of the day talking about that. 
And the reality is we have heard this over and over again within our church. Pastor Todd dealt with them. He talked to Romans. The Doctrines of Grace Conference dealt with some of this. Dealing with that issue, Esau I love, or, or Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated, the love, hate, what does that mean? You can spend the rest of the day talking over that. I don't really want to do that. I want to focus on what God is trying to do here in stating that his electing grace is a demonstration of his love. If you will, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And while you're turning there, there's another passage I want to read. Uh, and, and that one that you know, 1 Peter 1, 2 says this. You have been elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now that word foreknowledge, it literally means that God knows what's going to happen because he decreed and determined it was going to happen in the first place. Okay? So it's God's determination of those whom he would set his gracious favor upon to be his children. Now, many times in Scripture, when you hear that word know, it is much more than just an intellectual knowledge. And it's used in a sense practically synonymous with love. You can all go all the way back into the book of Genesis where it says that Adam knew Eve, his wife. And that, that, that word knew is just not interrogating. Yeah, I know about her. She's a nice-looking gal. That's just not what it means. It means that he knew her in an intimate fashion in the marital love and relationship that produced offspring. He knew her in an intimate way. God knows us likewise in that intimate way. But on the same time, what it is saying here is that his love has been set upon us. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we're going to be reading verses 6 to 7 where it says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. But basically, as the text goes on, God did so because he wanted to. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. But did you notice there the affection and the love and then the choosing are used in the same context. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says the very same thing. In verse 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, amongst all the nations. Do you see what God is saying here? He is equating the fact of his knowledge with his love. His love that he had set upon people and upon nations in eternity past. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 is another great text where it says to this. God says to Israel, only you I have known out of all the families of the earth. Now that just doesn't mean that, that God didn't know everything else that was going on. But it literally means that God in a very special way chose his people. It was an inseparable paternal love of his affection that he put upon those whom he chosen. You know, think about it for us within New Testament times. You know, um, God's election of his people is a sign and a seal that he loves us. He was pleased to do that in eternity past. Because he elected them, he then cherishes them in their Savior, Jesus Christ. And that say, our Savior is so in love with, with us that he calls us his bride. He's in love with us. You know, moreover, having gone to the cross, God's affectionate knowing of us indicates that he's so loved in his people, that he's so in love with us, 
that he offered his own son to go to the cross for us and to die for our sins. It is impossible for us to separate the fact that when God has set his seal upon us, when he chose us within himself, it is on the basis of that overwhelming, affectionate love for us. And why did God love us? Because he chose to do so. That's the only reason you need. And if you want to know more about that, the only way you will find out more is when we're in heaven and standing before him, and it will probably take us an eternity to figure it all out. Okay, but that is based upon his love. He has always been in love with us. Always been in love with us even before we were in existence. He's intensely passionate about our salvation. And we have to let it seek in that God chose us because he always foreknew us, which means he always loved us. Do you recognize that? God in his very electing grace in eternity past, before we came into existence, demonstrates his love toward us. God goes on to say to the nation of Israel, I know I loved you because of that elected grace, but because of my protective care. Because of my protective care, when he's talking about uh, Esau here and then the country of, of Edom. You know, God chose his people, yes, but he also cared for them. And when in trouble, he, as noted here, he would destroy their enemies. And the simple fact is that God protected his people throughout his, history. The Edomites, by contrast, the descendants of Esau, he did not protect I don't know if you remember this from your history, if you will, but you know, the Edomites were an interesting group of people. They were descendants of Esau. They lived in the region uh, south, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And if you remember the story, when Israel left Egypt during the Exodus, the Edomites would not let the nations go through their land. They said, no, you're not allowed to go through here. So they made them go around them into the eastern desert, if you will. They had to not go through that land. But yet God never let the nation of Israel attack Edom. Why? Because they were relatives. He wasn't going to let them do it. However, what happened? The Edomites would constantly be a plague for the nation of Israel. They would always attack them, it seemed like. They would always give them grief. They would support other nations who would then also attack, attack that nation. And God reminds them, look... I've loved you, and I've demonstrated that by protecting you from these people. And by contrast, what did I do to the nation of Edom? I turned their country into a wasteland, and I left an inheritance to the desert jackal. I have protected you historically. I have clear, you've clearly seen that, and you should be able to know and understand it. But yet also, God says, I've protected you historically, but I'm also going to protect you in the future. But did you see what Edom is going to do? Edom says, you know what? Uh, verse 4, Edom may say, we have been crushed, but we're going to rebuild. But the God Almighty says, yeah, you're not going to. You're sure you're going to try, but I'm going to demolish you. And I'm going to, you are then going to just be recognized as a wicked land under constant judgment from God because I'm protecting my nation of Israel. Does God protect us today? Yes. In ways we don't even recognize is he going to protect us in the past? He has. Will he do so in the future? Yes. Verse 5 indicates that God is also going to show his love by his coming judgment and promise. And really what this is actually looking at is the nation of Edom is ultimately going to be destroyed. And the nation of Israel is going to say, hey, you know, great is the Lord. Look at what he has done. He has protected you and protected us. And ultimately, God will make things right. You know, remember... Um, People may think they're getting away with things today. 
You may be going through difficulties, trials, issues. Eventually, God will make things right. It may not be in our lifetime, but it will be made right in eternity. You know, I, I long for the day, quite frankly, when some of these people stand before God. I guess I shouldn't say I look forward to it because that means they're going to be condemned to an eternity without God, which is not what we want. But on the other hand, the arguments will be silenced when they are standing in front of pure holiness. And I just I get so frustrated with the debates and arguments we hear today of people that just go counter to what God's word says. And it doesn't matter because when they stand before him, they will see the errors of the way. But unfortunately, it will then be too late. My friend, God loves us. He has set his love upon us. His love is always there. He has demonstrated that by his electing grace. He has demonstrated that by his protection and his care for us. He has also demonstrated that by the fact that in the future, judgment will come and God will make things right. Mark it down. And once we recognize that and look at that, we must believe what he says instead of questioning, where's the proof? He's already given it to us. Well, here Malachi goes on after demonstrating God has loved us. And now, and that God's love is demonstrated by our actions. But now we take it to the next approach here in, verse, in verses 6 through 14, where we are showing our love for God that's demonstrated by actions. God's love demonstrated by actions, our love for God is also demonstrated by actions. Because now what Malachi, I think, wants us to see is that to see that after dealing with what God is doing so, he wants to make sure that our lives are visibly manifesting that we truly love God. And here he confronts a problem. He says, hey, these priests, you know, the priests here are the issue. They are the ones that are not doing what God has commanded, and they were conducting them in a manner that was displeasing to God. He had already addressed the nation as a whole here in the first five verses, and now he's narrowing it down to the priests. They are the ones that we need to look at as to what they were doing, and this is where this section gets a little bit difficult because it goes over and over again as we were reading it. And that's where our eyes kind of glaze over all this because it's constantly being brought up. You're not offering the right kind of animals. They're defiled animals. They're content I mean, it's just listed over and over again, okay? So we have to understand this. And by the way, don't think that just because it's written to the priests that it's inapplicable to us. Let's use a New Testament concept. What does 1 Peter call us? A royal priesthood? So could we fall into the same type of patterns and manifestations that these people were doing. So what we're going to be looking at as we look at the rest of this passage together is that we're going to be, this, this section, while it's overwhelmingly negative, I would like to approach it, if you will, in the opposite way and approach like how can we demonstrate that we love God by our actions? And number one is this in verses 6 to 7, by honoring God. Do we honor him or do we despise him? And it's interesting to me that it starts out as a matter of honor. <laughs> and a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due to me? Now, you know, I think that's an important thing to remember because this is, this is a concept that really 
hold society together, you should give respect to those that have rule or authority over you. Society demands it. That's the way things function well within our society. But, and it's also interesting to me, which is one reason we should be thankful we're not under the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it stipulates that any son who continued to live in disobedience to their parents, and after all things of correction were exhausted, what was to be done to that child? It was the death penalty. Aren't you glad we don't have to deal with that today? Okay? But the whole point of that was is that it, God was stressing the importance that was placed by God in that day of obeying their fathers and mothers. But then we have to take another step back from that because in this background of history of Israel, do you realize that Israel was, was in respect to God and God to them was called their father? Deuteronomy 32 verse 6 says this in Moses' prayer, Is not your father your creator who made you and formed you? It was a matter of honor. And what these people were showing within their life and within, their, within what they were doing as priests is that they truly did not honor God at all. They didn't care. They were just going through the motions, if you will. They were purposely and blatantly showing contempt for his name by their actions and reflecting that they did not honor or care about him. They were lax toward him. They didn't take him seriously. You know, when you look at that word honor, it's the same word that we translate glory. They were not giving the glorious God of the universe the glory that he deserved. Now, I ask you this question that you can uh, ask yourself. Do we honor God? Do you honor him? What does it mean to honor him? You know, are you involved in an intimate way in your relationship with God? Because to honor God, first and foremost, means that you recognize him as the highest authority. That's easy to say, but then it's harder to put into practice at times because you have all these competing things that go on against you, if you will, within the world. You know, but do you give God the highest authority? And I tell you, when it comes to dealing with things of life, what God says and what he has commanded us is the priority. It is the authority. It does not matter what man says. It does not matter what our rulers say, if you will. If it contradicts what God's word says, well, quite frankly, you're wrong. You know, God is right. You're wrong. And God did not ask you for your opinion quite frankly, in order to determine what the right thing is to do. He has already told us that within his word. So God is the highest authority in our life. And to honor him means that we're going to submit to his ways, that we're going to be obedient to him, walking in obedience to him and trusting him to meet all the needs that we have, even though we don't, may not understand all the, the, the difficulties that we're going through in life and why. To honor God means we're going to respect him. That we're going to give him the priority and we're going to love him fully in his nature and in his character. Do we honor God? Proverbs 3 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him. Do you do that? Do you acknowledge him within your heart and within your life? Do you honor him with your lips, your speech? Everything you say comes into judgment. Do you verbally express gratitude for him? Do you make sure that, that you're, you're living and operating in a way pleasing to God? Is your life reflecting Christ in everything that you do? 
Do you honor God with your finances? A topic that's coming up in Malachi chapter 3. Okay, so we'll be dealing with that. Do you honor God with sharing your, his word with others? I mean, do you live in a life, in a, in a manner that is reflecting honor, giving him the glory that is due? God is, and honoring him is not something that we do to God and just to gain his favor, but rather it should be a daily expression of our life before him and recognizing our gratitude toward the one who loved us when we were still his sinners and his enemies. Your love for God demonstrates by your actions. Action one, do you honor him? The second thing is, is when it comes to this, by our worship of God demonstrates our love. Is our acceptable, is our worship acceptable to him? Now, you know, it's kind of clear here, right, that the priests weren't doing their job. Uh, God had set down divine standards for them. I mean, the priests had to be pure, and the whole book of Leviticus is a manual for the priests as to what they were to do, how they were to offer sacrifices, and the like. And there were many requirements that they had to keep, and one of those requirements is, is that they were supposed to bring sacrifices that were perfect, that they were healthy animals. They had to be without blemish at all. Now, there were a couple of reasons for that, and the first reason is this, you know, the sacrifice, bringing that animal to be sacrificed, was a gift that was to be offered to God. Do you realize and remember that a gift that you give to someone indicates the importance that you put upon the recipient? How much you think about that recipient is going to be reflected in the gift that you give. And by the way, there are even businesses out there today that will give gifts that, that show your disrespect and disdain for the person. But they recognize that the gift shows what you think about the person. So if your worship, if your offerings, if the things that you are not giving are given with the right manner and in the right way, it is reflecting what you truly think about God. Now, the other reason that an animal was, should have been without blemish is you've got to remember, in the sacrificial system, those animals were ones that were, that were uh, in, in that perfect way, was representing God's provision for his people and for the forgiveness that was necessary. And that sacrifice of an animal without blemish then was foreshadowing a picture of what Christ, as the Lamb of God without blemish, would do for his people. So even by doing uh, and offering things in a manner like this, it was wrecking the imagery that we have grown to love and expect to be as Christ is the one, as that perfect Lamb of God who died for us and bore our penalty, and he's the only one that could have done it because he was the perfect Lamb of God without blemish. If he had sinned, if he had blemished, his death would have done nothing more than mine would have done. Zero but he was the perfect God. They needed to represent that imagery, if you will, within the sacrifices, and they were not doing it. Now, to make the point here, it's interesting, Malachi says in verse 9, hey, or I'm sorry, in verse 8, try offering this to your governor, see if they'd be pleased. I mean, try to give an animal like this to the ruler of that day. What are they going to say about it? You see, I'd like to suggest to you how we worship is important. How we conduct ourselves before God is important. Yeah, we don't do the animal sacrifices anymore. 
But you know, uh, the details of what they went through for, for this, for the worship of God in the sacrificial system showed the importance that God had within their everyday life and walk. It matters how we worship God. Do we show him contempt or do we show him respect? I mean, what would you think if a person came to our church and purposely sang off key during the service? Would they be showing respect for God or disrespect? Now, for me, I just sing and I'm off key anyway because I make the joyful noise and that's the best I can do. But it's not on a purposeful and blatant way. On the other hand, let's say that, a, that, that, that our pastor would show up on Sunday morning unshaven, shirtless, in baggy shorts, wearing slippers. Do you think he would be taken seriously as serving and worshiping God? Probably not, right? How we worship in the manner that it is done is extremely important. And here the priests were showing we do not have respect for God. And our worship of God is being done in just a careless manner. And we don't, we're not concerned about it, is what their attitude was. But yet Malachi is saying it's important. Your worship of God indeed needs to be done in a manner pleasing to him. Verse 9, the, the, the prophet calls out, plead with God to be gracious. The problem is they're going to be pleading with God, but if they don't change their manner, that God is not going to accept their offering regardless. And then in verse 10, he, he just throws all these rhetorical questions out the window. And he then clearly states, oh, that you would just shut the temple doors, close it up. Don't light these useless fires on my altar because I am not pleased with you. If their actions and act of worship is not acceptable to God, if it's displeasing to him, then just don't even bother because he is not impressed. You know, I would dare say to be a little bit bold and forthright that quite honestly, it would be better if we could apply this to some present day churches is quite frankly, it would be better to shut their doors than for them to continue to move onward in deceiving the people to think that everything is okay within their life and walk just to make them comfortable. It would be better that they were to close them down because they're not accomplishing anything and only misleading God's people. Well, worship's important. Do you notice why in verse 11? Why is important? God is great. He should indeed be taken seriously and deserves the best that human beings can offer. Now, let me just apply and go toward a New Testament principle. Passage that you know well, again, the book of Romans. Romans has the answer for everything, it seems like, right? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? your reasonable act of worship. Your entire life is something that is to be manifesting worship and praise to God, and it's only acceptable when it's being done in God's way and in his manner that is pleasing to him. The last part of this, uh, in verses 13 and 14, says this. How do we show God we love him? How do we demonstrate that by actions? It's just not by honor, it's just not by worship, but our service and attitude toward God. Notice real quickly what the priests were doing. Notice it says in verse, in verse 13, And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. The priests, supposedly in a, 
carry on a great service to God saying, oh, man, this is just too hard. Why am I doing this? Why am I serving God? It's just, oh, this is just not worth it. You know, the priests had gotten to the point that they were no longer even effective in what they were doing in the, in the culture at this time. You know, when it comes to us, our love for God is shown by our service. You know, God has given us all gifts. We're to be using it and manifesting it within our life, in the lives of other people, in the lives of work within the church. Are you using his gifts to his glory? He wants us to do it with the right attitude. These people were sniffing contemptuously at it, my translation reads. The right perspective, the right attitude should be there at the forefront. We want to serve him. We should want to honor him. We should want to give him the praise and glory in everything we do. And it's going to be manifest within our lives because we have to recognize, as the text says, last verse, if you will, my name is great and it is to be feared amongst the nations. Is that true within your life and walk? Let me close in a different way, I guess. <clears throat> I'd like us to turn back to verse 8. And I'd like to comment on it to wrap this up in, a, in trying to tie it all together, if you will. Whereas in verse 8, it says this. By saying the Lord's table is contemptible, when you offer uh, blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that wrong? Try offering it to your governor. Would he be pleased? Would he accept you? Says the Lord. Imagine for a moment it's Friday afternoon. You're at work. And all of a sudden the phone rings. And miraculously you decide to answer the phone and it doesn't go to voicemail. <laughs> the person that's on the phone is a representative from the White House. It's the scheduling secretary, and, he, and that person tells you that the president and his wife are coming to town. And they have taken a new initiative where they have decided to eat dinner with a local family on the trip, and you have been chosen to host them. You are going to be hosting the president of the United States. He has chosen to have dinner with you. Now, after you do your due diligence and make sure this is not a prank call, and as someone is, uh, is trying to pull something over on me, you say, man, this is true. It's going to happen. So what do you do? You immediately call your wife to tell her the great news. You call the wife, and miraculously, she answers the phone, too, and it doesn't go to voicemail. <laughs> tell you what I go through in life, right? <laughs> you tell her that it's not just my wife. Don't get me wrong there. It's everybody else I call voicemail. It's just amazing. You tell her the great news. And you go, honey, look what's going to happen. The president is coming to our house for dinner. Man, we should do a nice steak, you know, get, get, a, get a big ribeye or something to have it. Or, or maybe we'll just smoke a brisket. Now we're talking, you know, it's going to be a good barbecue. Or if you, here you are in Michigan, you're a, a fisherman, you really like fish. I just caught some fresh salmon out of the lake. We can do that. My, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. We're going to be hosting the president. And then your wife says this, you know, we don't need to worry. Everything is okay. We got plenty of leftovers in the refrigerator. I mean, and, and I can assure you that they still will be okay by the time the president comes, not a problem. I mean, last week we had some grilled chicken. It did real good on that. It was really tasty. Uh, and, and, we, and that's going to be good enough to feed a couple of people. Uh, and then we had some leftover lasagna, 
you know, pasta, we'll throw that in for some variety. That's, that, that'll be good too. And yeah, we even ordered out a Malachi's pizza. <laughs> and we even have a couple of slices left over, you know, and we can have that too. And all today, honey, I want to tell you, the grandkids were here. We fixed a whole batch of macaroni and cheese, and for the first time ever, there was some left over. We can have that too. And you're on the phone with your wife, and you're listening, and you're wondering what am I going to say? And you finally decide to say, honey, I love you. And you know that. But are you out of your mind? This is the President of the United States. You've got to be kidding me. We're not going to serve them leftovers. Yeah, you know, that might be a no-brainer to you. But what many believers do is offer up to the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, leftovers, and wonder why God is not blessing them. And we see that here in the latter part of Malachi chapter 1. You see, there are many ways that we can offer our leftovers to God and demonstrate that we do not love him or respect him. We give God our leftover time. You know, that's when we give God our attention only after we are watching all of our shows. They're all done. Our schedule has nothing left on it. Or we're not too tired. Okay, now I got some time to give to God. We give God many times our leftover service. You know, life is busy and we just throw something together at the last minute. We have to do something for him. doesn't matter how it's done or what way it's done, just so we get it done. It's our leftover service. But yet when it comes time for us to do something for ourselves, it doesn't matter how much time. It's got to be done just right. We oftentimes give God our leftover money. Again, Malachi 3 will be talking about that. We throw something to, uh, you know, we, we only have enough to give to God after we have purchased, financed, secured all that we want for ourselves. You know, we oftentimes look to God. We want your help, God, in paying our bills, blessing us. We want us to get a raise, get us out of debt. But then we only give him our leftover money. You see, we don't have to openly despise God in order to despise him. All we have to do is give him our leftovers, while at the same time we expect God to somehow bless us. We at times can bring leftover praise, <laughs> leftover worship, leftover money, leftover time, all the while while asking God to do for us exceedingly abundantly above all that we may ask or think. You see, the message here in Malachi is timeless, is it not? It is something that is sharing with us that our love for God is determined by our actions. And whether we truly honor, respect, worship, and serve God by giving him our best in obedience to his commands, or do we just give him our leftovers? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what Malachi has for us. And God, I pray that for all of us, especially myself, God, that we will take you seriously, that we will take you as the sovereign God of the universe that has demands and expectations upon us. Lord, help us to never forget your love for us. And in response, what should we do but to love you back by honoring you, by serving you, by worshiping you in a way that is, uh, that is in obedience to you and your commands as we want to lift you up and to show to others that your name is great. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.